Welcome. This is the Collective Nightmares Podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. My name is Marshall Smith, and we are in the midst of discussion of the films of Zach Parker, which are, this film demonstrates my appreciation for horror in particular because of its ability to manipulate and encourage and promote a shift in empathy and consciousness through the, the storytelling of the genre. And I'm Laura Patterson. Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I just have to say, I'm so excited to be reminded how much I love Proxy and what a great film this was. And I'm also super excited to have finished up our discussion of Zach Parker's four films because next we get to actually talk to Zach Parker. And that is really very exciting. We appreciate you joining us. If you are just joining us now, we encourage you to at least watch his film Scalene and listen to that episode before this one. It will help you make sense. The first two are from a much earlier point in his career. You don't necessarily need to have joined us for that. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at our website, collectivenightmares.com. If you have found us on iTunes or Spotify, we would appreciate it if you would rate us or review us subscribe to us and if you have a friend who you think would be interested in a deep dive into horror films please recommend us it helps we, we appreciate it you can find us on instagram reach out to us let us know what you think at collective nightmares you can message us on there as well if you have suggestions for films or anything else and spoilers you should watch this film first we are very anti-spoiler here on this podcast particularly with horror movies and uh, for some films in particular, you just have to watch the film before you have it spoiled. And this is one of those films. And it won't take long before you into the film, before you understand what that means. So go hunt it down. It's on online streaming. Go find it, watch it, come back, join us. And thank you for joining us. This is Zach Parker's 2013 film, Proxy. It's his most recent the, the synopsis from IMDb is a spoiler, which is disappointing again. So my version of the synopsis is the film follows the life of three parents. Motives are not what they seem and sanity is in short supply. And with that, we appreciate you joining us for a pregnant discussion of this film. Are we ready? Yeah, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's indeed. I also didn't really remember this film. How about this? Can we just start with what exactly happened? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I, (laughs) yes. On that note, I will say, I feel like I was way less confused this time than I was last time. So I think I can actually really contribute to this conversation because I'm pretty sure I know what happened. I don't know if I felt that way (laughs) the first time I saw it. Yeah, but I, I, I just want to confirm. And then I guess I think that's helpful for, I think it helps when we do a little bit of recap for, people listening, or at least characters. So our first person is Esther. She asks Annika, Annika, what did she say? Annika. Annika to assault her after her OBGYN appointment because she loved being pregnant but didn't want to be a mother. And she's, so she has two weeks to term and everything's healthy. And so she's, so she beats the baby to death. And then, and then Esther goes to the grieving mother's support group and Melanie befriends her. And Melanie tells her that her son and husband died somehow. Peyton and Patrick. Yeah, she says they died in a car accident. Okay. And by happenstance, Esther finds out that Melanie, that Patrick and Peyton are alive and Melanie's been lying about it and goes to their house and kills the kid, drowns the kid, 
Peyton? Well, first, first she invites Melanie over. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. At night, makes advances toward her and says that they're the same and they understand each other. And then she's shocked when Melanie turns her down, right. says she's not interested. And also it says to her, she's the one who, she's who she tells that I never wanted to be a mother. I just like being pregnant. Isn't that the same night when she's has it or makes a move on her? Kisses her. Maybe, or maybe it was at the coffee shop. I don't remember. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think it was when she kissed her. You might be right. Okay. And so then Patrick interrupts here and kills Esther and he's upset and he ends up finally going, or he ends up going to a grieving father's support group and somebody recognizes him somehow and he finds out his wife has been lying. He leaves his wife. Sort of. But apparently what he really did was go upstairs to take a shower and kill himself. Really? Yes. It sounded like when he said, I have to go and I'm leaving or whatever he said, it sounded like he was leaving Melanie. And I think we were supposed to assume that he walked out of the house, but he didn't walk out of the house because when Annika, yeah, she shows up at Melanie's house upset because Melanie is the woman who took Esther from her and got Esther killed somehow. And she says, where's Patrick? And Melanie, I I think we were supposed to think she was telling the truth, says he left. He's not coming back. But I think she probably knew he really was upstairs taking a shower because Annika hears the shower, goes upstairs, walks in, opens the door, and we don't see what she saw, but we see her look really shocked. And then she closes the door and she walks out. And so I think he, in combination with the fact that Patrick left the gun by the back door, I think Patrick went upstairs and killed himself in the shower. I mean, we know Patrick's dead. We didn't see anybody kill him. Killing yourself in the shower is like a thing. And Annika looked really surprised when she opened the door. So I think that's what happened. Okay. Okay. This is good. Cause I did not figure that out. <laughs> really? Okay. Okay. I mean, that all makes sense. Okay. And then Melanie has this fantasy of writing a book and going on a talk show and being this, being this celebrity ish, whatever. Some, some level of celebrity for having been a survivor and writing a book about parents need to tighten up or what's her book? <laughs> yeah, it was how her tragedy could have been avoided, which is a funny one because when you really think about it. <laughs> kind of complicated story. I don't know how you translate into a generalizable book if you really very widely applicable. But it doesn't matter because her point is that she wants fame and she wants people to, she wants attention. She wants people to pay attention to her. And she thinks the way that she can get it is through being a grieving person. And so this works out great for her. I love that ending, by the way. It works out great because she gets what she wants. Because now everybody who can tell the actual story is dead. And she, she does get to leave being just the horribly aggrieved person. And even though I think she was legitimately sad that her son died, and I don't think she was dealing with it super well, I think she started to see the silver lining when all of a sudden she realized, oh, this was an outlet for exactly what she had been faking before. She could get this sort of pity, I guess, attention. And she really enjoyed that. And so she started, suddenly she was happier and she's dressing more nicely and she's thinking positively about life again when she realized she could have everybody's attention and and pity. Right. So the first thing is Esther was correct. They were like each other. Esther really liked the recognition and the attention for being pregnant, which was a very minor sort of form of celebrity. And then in the end, we find out that Melanie is the same, I guess, on a basically on a much larger scale a little different in that she likes the attention of grieving, I guess, but it's still being recognized for being a mother without actually being a mother or it's, it's not the right. mothering part of being a mother. It's something else about right. it. Something about that status without actually doing it. Although I will say that Melanie did seem to love Peyton at least sort of. And when she went upstairs to give him a bath, I thought she sounded like she wanted to see him. I didn't really get the sense that Melanie was, not enjoying being a mother, but maybe that she just more so enjoyed, or differently, I don't know, enjoyed the fame. Fame is uh, not the right way to put it. Right. So I'm sorry, this is a little bit of an aside, but I really, 
appreciate this. So we're recording this uh, Sunday, May 31st. Is that right? Laura? <laughs> I had to look. <laughs> that was not a rhetorical question. I'm sorry. You seem like someone who would know the date. So we're recording this while the uh, Black Lives Matters for uh, Floyd. What's his first name? George? Is that right? Yeah. George, while the Black Lives Matter protest for George, George Floyd is ongoing, I live pretty central Denver. And one, I'm seeing cars come the wrong way down my one-way street from the mayor, main thoroughfare which means that I think Colfax must be blocked off, which is a big deal. It's really the central thoroughfare of Denver. And I am really curious what that's about. And the other thing I just saw is a very new white BMW parallel park and three people get out, three white kids get out and like gear up for protests and go walk down there. And I just, there was something very anachronistic about that that I uh, also very much appreciated. Um, and I'm also starting to hear flashbangs, Laura. So at some point here, so there is apparently confrontation happening. There's a police precinct, probably the closest police precinct to my house, maybe four blocks away. And I wonder if there isn't standoff there because I got the distinct impression that protesters were starting to target that precinct because the militarized police vehicles and the National Guard was staging part of their operation out of that precinct. I've got people running towards me. I'm sorry, Laura, I'm like, yeah, we've got people running. Oh my gosh, running. Away from the police station towards, can you hear the flashbangs in the background? Yeah. Do you want to pause this and go see what's... I mean, I'm sorry, Laura. It's just like, I've got oh, like, well, no, this is quite a few people like just pour like all of a sudden I've just started coming down the street and, and coming through that parking lot, you know, that's across, across the way. So anyway, we're recording this in a very odd time. I appreciate your, what you're working with me on this. Okay. So yes. So they're both interested in some sort of real attention seeking, but not particularly for being a mother. We know that, Patrick is not a good dad. We know that he ends up recognizing that he wasn't a very good dad. He specifically says, I thought that being a provider, earning the income for a house or whatever was sufficient. But in his grief group, he says that, um, let me just ask this group of folks what's going on. Yeah, do. Uh, Okay, yeah, so the group of folks I just asked said that there was standoff at the police precinct and uh, they're tear gassing people. Oh, wow. Yeah. We'll see what happens here, but sta- sta- <laughs> I guess stand by. I mean, if there's something I can do for, you know, if I see anyone, I-, I may need to just go do that. All right. So anyhow, God, I'm really torn, Laura. I feel like I should go. Fuck. Let's try. Let's try. <laughs> All right. We'll try for 20 minutes. I yeah. mean, this- and then... If we just get a short little discussion in, we get a short little discussion in and then go out okay. there and see what's going on and yeah, be a participant okay. in this world that we live in. Yeah, right. So Esther likes being pregnant, but does not want to be a mom to the point where she asks her girlfriend to beat her child out of her. We know that Melanie is a fine mom, but is more, seems to be more interested or more content with being recognized and known for suffering through the tragedy of a uh, death of her child to the point where she is going to a grieving mother's support group, apparently for the attention while her kid is still alive. And she, so Esther also finds out that she is, finds this out because she fakes having lost her kid in the store, or in the mall. She's faking that, right? Cause she just goes out to her car and is like, Oh, well, here's my kid. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she's faking it. And and I think when you said that Patrick was a bad dad, because he, you know, admits that at his support group, which he does, I think he's, I wouldn't say that Melanie is a fine mom and Patrick's a bad dad. I think they're, I mean, Melanie's problem is more insidious, obviously, but leaving her kid by himself in the car, presumably, because he's crying when she goes out there to serve whatever sort of crazy coping mechanism she has going on. That's not good. Patrick, 
is a bad dad in so much as he's not a stellar dad, but I think he's a bad dad in a very normal kind of way that a lot of people probably fall into, regardless of, of gender, I would say a lot of parents probably fall into roles where they don't sure. spend as much time with their children as they wish they could, or maybe they're more terse or more strict or something than they would be in retrospect because they were busy dealing with their own stuff and dealing with their own career and right. all of that. Is that also a parental faux pas? I don't know if faux pas is the right word to like leave your kid with a full tub of bathwater while you go do whatever else. Maybe. I mean, the key wasn't in the tub. I feel like it'd be different if he was taking a bath. Right. I don't know how he got in there. A little bit. Yeah. I don't think that's, it wouldn't have been as bad. It would have been worse if he was in the tub, I think. Right. He got himself into the tub. She was like, he's in his room. He needs to go, or you need to go give him the bath. So she basically was just running downstairs to tell Patrick, you need to go do this tonight. I think so. You know, yeah, you run downstairs. That's pretty normal. I mean, I don't really know, but. Since we may only have a short time to record here. Yeah. I'll I'll throw out something. Please. When we saw this last time, I remember making an argument with you about how this was a message about society in some way. And this was a long time ago when we saw this and when we recorded. And so we weren't maybe as used to talking about things from exactly the perspective that we've honed over the last few years. But I would say that when we watch a film, we often, we look to see who's being demonized, how they're being demonized, and then how that reflects on society. And I didn't see that societal connection this time. I saw an individualistic message about these particular people. I would say that Melanie is our villain. And it's kind of a cool story where she's the villain and she also wins. I like that when a film can pull that off in the sense that just because she didn't get a reprimand does not mean we were supposed to be on her side. We were clearly supposed to be disappointed with the ending. And she also won. And I think that can be really impactful often because it can make a message about the power or the ability to sneak on under the radar of whatever villain it is that you're dealing with. But I will say with Melanie, I just, I, I had, a, I struggled. I had a hard time tying this into a broader societal lesson. And I remember we discussed media focus. You know, there's the segment at the end where she dreams this news story, but I, I found that lacking this time. I just found the societal message lacking. I still thoroughly enjoyed the film. I, mm-hmm really liked the twists and the fact that everything mattered. Every moment in the film mattered. And that was something I remember really admiring Zach Parker for in our previous viewings of at least his last two films. I mean, years ago saying how he did time. He actually, everything happened. As soon as you found out it was happening, it happened. You didn't have this long exposition where you knew what was going to happen in 10 or 15 or 20 minutes. And you were just waiting to go through the motions to get there. There was none of that. And I, I super appreciated that again this time around, that as soon as you knew where it was going, you went there. And then it went somewhere else. And I didn't find it to be exhausting like I did no. last time. I found it to be really engaging. And I was very interested in the story the whole way through. But I didn't feel this societal indictment. And so I wanted to pose that question to you and say, did you, did you feel that? I thought it was a great story about these characters. But did you feel like there was a societal connection there? No, not any more than... Not any more than any film where I make the argument that characters are symbolic or emblematic of, of larger of larger uh, trends or, or groups or, or whatnot. So in this case, no. In terms of indictment of the media, it is the media that is, uh, is responsible for Annika being able to find Melanie's house. And it is also presumably the media that is the fantasy that is compelling enough for Melanie to actually carry out the killing of Aunt Annika. And so there, there would be that. We, we do have a... Yes, but one thing I noticed this time was that it was also Melanie called News Channel 8, apparently, and tried to get her story rerun. And they called back and said no. That's true. That is true. Right. And if that were meant to be an indictment of the media, that scene shouldn't have been there. Oh God. And you're right. Because actually it wasn't, it it was, Melanie was just rewatching the tape. Annika found the house because she went and got her truck. She didn't see it from the news and recognize it. She just saw 
she just saw it was parked across the street from the house and went and checked. And she was like, well, I guess I have the right house. She didn't know that. So that wasn't really the media's fault. So next that, never mind, scratch all that. So then the other piece that I remember us talking about is, is the public nature of women's bodies, which is a prominent sociological piece that we've talked about before, where, which is very directly what Esther references of, I was invisible before, nobody cared about me. And all of a sudden, once I was visibly pregnant, people were just happy. They saw me as some sort of symbol of hope. And that, that I think, is, a, is definitely a nod to, to what we think about, what we recognize with, with mothers. Neither, neither one of these mothers is actually, the only recognition they get is not as themselves, but in relation to either their baby or their husband and their kid. There is no like, oh, you're a great person. It's you're a great person because you have this connection to a a fetus or a baby or a man or whatever, which... Yes, but I like something else about what you're saying I want to add to. Yeah, There's no recognition for actual motherhood. Right. No one gets recognition for that, but they get recognition for the anticipation of motherhood. Like the idea of motherhood is recognized. The loss of motherhood is recognized. So it's the before and after, but nothing about the during. Right. And that could be commentary. That could be a statement about devaluing the effort and energy that goes into actually parenting, as opposed to holding up this image of what parenting should be, glorifying the ideal versus the actual act and lack of recognition for the act. And that made me, I had a moment where, and I think this is a valuable or a valid question of, I think the film and I'm not, I'm really not sure about this, but the film could either be read as like misogynist or very critical of, I would say particularly the right wing, just like you said, we care about you when, when you're pregnant and we care about you if you've had or some sort of tragedy, but we really don't care about you when, when you're just a mother who is trying to do whatever you're doing. The misogyny would be, or the potentially misogynist reading would be all these women are delusional, psychotic, whatever. Melanie digs her own hole. She creates her own, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If she weren't in there lying about, about having a husband and son who had been killed, she would never have met Esther. And then Esther, you know, and then this chain of events would never have happened from there. The, Annika beating the baby out of Esther still would have presumably happened, but, oh, and then we need to talk about the fact that she, Esther went and had the two guys fuck her in between. I totally forgot about that. Didn't we decide, I was like, okay, basically she's like trying to get pregnant again? Maybe. She certainly wasn't getting like any sexual gratification out of, out of that sex. Maybe she was. That's, the most plausible reason I can think of in this moment why she would have been doing that because yeah, she didn't seem to be enjoying it. She seemed only to be interested in women from what we saw. That seems likely. And that would fit with sperm donor. Okay. Yeah. So it's all like the whole themes are all these contraception or not contraception, conception, conception, pregnancy. And then there was a real sexuality piece because she has this joyless anonymous sex with these two guys. She gets pregnant from a sperm donor uh, she has, she has sex with a woman. Uh, she has sex with Annika. Annika has autoerotic asphyxiation that is unsatisfying. She also says that it was because Esther was so crazy that she was such a good fuck. Is that it? Is that all the sex in the film? I think so. But I, I think that's the most plausible explanation. There's a question for, for Zach, right? If she was trying to get pregnant. Right. Yeah. And so I'm hung up on what you were saying about being able to read it as misogynistic or not, because I I would like to come to a referendum on that from our perspective of whether we think it was or wasn't. My gut instinct is that it wasn't. And why? I felt like we empathized. I felt like we empathized with everyone to varying degrees, but with everyone. Even the people we disliked, I felt like we were interested in them, and I don't feel like they were especially held up as solely problematic. Melanie the most, that she was more problematic. 
I don't know. I can't, I can't, okay, I'm having a hard time solidifying my thoughts around that. If it was misogynistic, the movie would be critical of them, which it was, but... but we also had, do we have fully reasonable uh, explanations for why? We, we have an explanation for Esther, for why she would get pregnant when she doesn't want to be a mother. Although if she knew she never wanted to be a mother, because she says that, she was like, no, I never wanted to be a mother, but she still goes to a sperm bank and gets pregnant. It's funny because like you said, my, my instinct is that it was not particularly misogynist either, but I appreciate you're willing to, to travel down that road and, and like see if we can sort that out. Because that's, that's not a good explanation. Or maybe it is. Well, sure. Her explanation is that she wanted to be pregnant. She just didn't want to have an actual baby. Right. And, and that was because she was so invisible and yes. so disregarded just as a woman herself. So that is, okay, this is a, it's a sane reaction to a, to a insane situation, or it's a problematic reaction to a problematic situation, whatever. It's, it's like, it's not just she's ridiculous or crazy. There's I see what you're there. saying. Yeah, she didn't just represent women who do this bad thing. I really empathized with her. Yeah. She was also crazy. <laughs> but, right. But like right. you said, there was, I think you're, you exactly hit on the, the important point there, that she, there was a plausible backstory that we cared about and we took the time to really want to get to know. And it made sense. Right. And then, and then with, uh, do we ever get anything from Melanie about wanting to be a mom or, or why she, do we get any explanation for her? I would say our explanation comes from Esther saying we're the same. And I don't think we saw much to contradict that in the film. So I think, I think Esther was probably at least somewhat right. And that Melanie wanted recognition. She wanted to be noticed. She wanted to be held on a pedestal in some way. And you could argue that, I don't know if the film really hit at this, but it may have with the little scenes with Patrick not wanting to do the bath and, hey, babe, will you do it? And Melanie taking the brunt of that, those types of tasks. And that is a very standard gender role where the woman just takes the brunt of those types of tasks. So maybe just that there's commentary on, on that, on the lack of recognition from others and how the only way to get recognized is to have some sort of tragedy where your, your child is highlighted in some special way. But beyond that, you're just supposed to do it and you don't get acknowledged. Nobody right. especially wants to go to lunch <laughs> with you or hear what you have to say. Or Yeah, and I was just going to say that because we also, because yeah, because we do see that with Patrick who's just like, eh, I don't want to do it. I got the game to watch. You're a mom, just do that shit. I'm not even going to say like, thank you for doing it or whatever. And And I was going to mention the lunch thing too. Like, we'll go with you to lunch once <laughs> and then we'll be too busy. And isn't there, who says that? Somebody says that to somebody else about it'll fade or, or the like sympathy or the caring. Melanie will. says it to Esther. Oh, she does. Oh, okay. But she was, okay. Cool. Melanie says it to Esther, but doesn't also the social worker or someone in the hospital at the beginning with Esther, she gives a very similar message. Right. That, okay, yeah, we, everybody cares when you're in a crisis moment, crisis point when you're in the hospital. But after that, you're on your own. I like that. And overall, honestly, that is a societal indictment. The message around crisis, maybe more broadly, but also just the message around parenting or around motherhood, this invisibility and lack of recognition. If we take Esther and Melanie combined, we've got the whole spectrum of raising a child. And what's absent there is any sort of acknowledgement or recognition for the actual raising of the child right. from anyone, even from the father, you know, from right. Patrick, how Patrick treated Melanie, he should have cared. It's his own child. And right. still, it was, maybe you go do the bath. I don't know. <laughs> right. And he apparently also should have just like done half of the parenting <laughs> or some right. of the parenting. Cause apparently he didn't do any of it. <laughs> uh, cause he, uh, cause he gave the cat's cradle like, Oh, not now was his top thing. So yeah, we've got, we've got women receiving glory before we've got women receiving glory after, and we've got this, this really strong ideal of what motherhood is because that's what influences both of those glories. Oh my gosh, you're going to be a mother. We should pay attention to you. You're wonderful. You bring joy to the world. Oh no, you lost your status as mother. How terrible this must be awful. We're going to pay attention to you, but there's no recognition whatsoever of the actual parenting. For sure. And Patrick, and Patrick is a counterpoint because he does get recognition beyond being a parent because 
he has his father who is like, and the other people like, oh, we want to see you back in the office. We appreciate you being here. Nobody says anything to him about, like, they ask him, like, how are you doing? But he is recognized for his grief by the guy who's like, oh, this is actually honest. But there are little points where he is acknowledged as other than a father. The father piece is really only becomes relevant. Is that right? Or am I just, am I reaching for that? I was thinking more along the lines of what his perspective on parenting, his change in perspective on parenting, what that represents in terms of the overall ideology of the film. As soon as he saw the error in his ways, I guess you could say he changed. And so that to me... What I'm saying is the film, the film let him go through that transition pretty easily, if that's the right way to say it. So I'm thinking if the film was trying to indict, if it was some sort of indictment of patriarchy along with how mothers are treated, he shouldn't make such a flip. He should be a symbol of that somehow. His problematic interactions with Melanie at the beginning, which were mundanely problematic, which is probably better as a societal indictment. Those that should have carried on because then he should have been the symbol for the recognition she wasn't getting, but he wasn't really. I think he gets absolved and he makes a transformation that then turns him into a hero of the story who's realized the error in his ways. That just feels very non-societally indicting to me. Right. I only hesitated because I, I don't know if he really makes a transition. He just says he regrets what he did. He, he, and then he is... But a lot of effort goes into his speech at that support yeah. group. We're there for six minutes in grueling right. detail listening to what he has to say. Yeah. That was notable. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I was just thinking then too, but he doesn't... I was trying to decide if he like had really changed. Would he have... Would he have taken his own life? Because that leaves her to deal with her grief by herself. He's not then stepping up as a father, but he's definitely not stepping up as a partner. He's, he's well, tapping out. Immediately before that, he found out that she... It, I thought he actually was somewhat generous in his interpretation <laughs> of what she had been up to. Because my first thought, he knew that the woman who killed his son was talking to his wife in a way that looked like they were familiar. Now he finds out that his wife has been telling people the son and he have been dead for a very long time. I would immediately jump to... She somehow was behind killing right. her son. And when he brought the gun out, I didn't think that was overkill, frankly. Oh, no, I don't know about the overkill. I, no, not, none of that was necessarily the overkill. I guess I don't. But I, for him, when he killed, I think when he killed himself, it was maybe more so a statement about his character that he wasn't actually going to sign up for violence. He never wanted violence. I thought he had justification in the scheme of the movie that he could have based on what he knew at that time, I would have thought it was a lot fishier than the truth. The truth as we knew it was oh. crazier than the fishier answer that would have been more obvious. Right, right. And right. he didn't know that. So yeah. I think his character was, I don't know if kind is the right way to say it, but in terms of his dealings with her, I think he decided just not to let that anger get him and he just fell into his sadness and went and disappeared. Okay. And I like him as a character. I'm just saying that then he doesn't, what he did at the beginning, I don't think really represents a societal message if that's the trajectory he takes, because that's a very hopeful, I guess, trajectory around that message. And that's fine. I liked him as a character and I actually liked that he didn't resort to violence at the end. I thought that was, it made him more interesting, but I think it made him an individual, not a metaphor. He does fantasize about torturing Esther. I mean, he doesn't but he does fantasize about it. So that's, I mean, that's fine. Fantasy is one thing. And I guess he punches the wall, but that's, but the punching the wall is what actually compels him to go to the group. Right. Yeah. He's trying to resist the engaging in the violence. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. I thought I pressed my mute button. Sorry. I mean, I appreciate all that. I'm trying the only other thing I would add to that is that it was, I don't know if it's worth reading into that when he shoots her the first time, he shoots her right in the stomach like right where the pregnancy would have been. And it's like carnage and guts and whatever. So it seemed a very, particularly with a, a low budget film that could have very well been um, practical as much as symbolic of if you've got the uh, prosthetics for 
for that part of the body, you use them again. What do we do with Annika here, who is lesbian, butch lesbian, loves Esther, goes to avenge her and is killed, even though vengeance is odd. She's got the Orion like warrior tattoo on her face. She is very much so. She's also the one who, she is the violence in the film. No, And she loves Esther in a problematic way. (laughs) Yeah, right. What's with the, I did notice that. I I do have concerns about that of, okay, Esther's back from this horrific event and Annika apparently creeps into the apartment or gets into the apartment silently. And when Esther's hunting for something in the fridge, grabs her and takes her off to fuck her. (laughs) That's not even what I meant. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And then has the unfulfilling autoerotic asphyxiation sex that, uh, what's her name? Melanie sees. I don't know what to make of that, but it was, she was interesting because she's totally outside of motherhood. She's willing to, 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 she says, you oh, know, wait. I'm the only one. Go ahead. Wait, wait. But what I was initially going to say was that the problematic loving her, I specifically am thinking of the moment where she said, you know, I'm the only one who loves you. You know, I'm the oh, only yeah. one who will ever care about you. There was an abusive dynamic going on there that was really bad. But then you just said she was outside of motherhood. She was having her call her mother in that same scene. I'll protect you. Mother will protect you. Oh, God, that's right. So what does that mean? If Annika is a mothering kind of figure? Oh, God. I mean, they were dysfunctionally devoted to each other. She was abusive and controlling of Esther. Esther was, it looks like, I gosh, I don't, maybe even Annika was getting more out of that relationship than Esther was. At first, my thought was that Esther's the one being, Esther's the one who's weak, who's being controlled by Annika, but it almost appeared the other way around later that Annika is really devastated and get es- gets Esther's name tattooed on her neck and won't leave her apartment and even after she's dead and, and was willing to bludgeon her Esther's stomach for her. So I guess Annika was just as devoted, even though Annika was the one who was trying to keep Esther under her thumb. I don't know exactly what was going on there. But yeah, so what is that? But then she calls her mother. That mo- I would say like in that dialogue, mother was equated with protector because she kept saying, I'll protect you, I'll protect you. But then, gosh, mother, the mothers that we saw in the rest of the film did the absolute opposite of protect anyone. And she doesn't protect her because obviously she ends up killed. So she's unable to protect her and she doesn't even really enact vengeance on her. She loses out. She goes there to kill Melanie and doesn't. I mean, she ties her up and she like, she, she doesn't actually, I mean, she's the one who ends up killed in that. So she is unable to protect her. So she is, if her notion of motherhood was to protect Esther, she failed. (laughs) So everybody is a failed mother, if you want to call being pregnant motherhood, which I'm not really a fan of that, but. I'm also thinking that just the very act, the fact that this film put us through the scene at the beginning, which I still couldn't watch. The first time we saw this film, I, Noah was nine months old. And I told this story in another podcast, so I won't retell it now. But I'll just say that I really appreciated you sending me this suggestion for the film. And you That's prefaced right. it with, you might have a hard time with this, or this might not be the right time to be watching this film. And you didn't, I don't think you really gave any spoilers. You just said, for some pregnancy-related reason, because I had gone through infertility treatments and had just had a baby. And, you know, that this might not be what I wanted to watch at the moment. But you thought it was a, a good suggestion. And it was horribly painful to watch the beginning. And even this time, I always watch the violence in horror films. I'm not usually one to hide from that. Except for the actual animal cruelty in Cannibal Holocaust, right? Or did you look away for that? I may have looked away for that. And I'm also thinking Kuso got me. Kuso, Kuso, which for anyone who listens to this podcast, dig back in the archives because I'm still such a big proponent of Kuso and I never want to see it ever again. But yes, I no, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to say, I'm glad you said that. I see Kuso when I'm looking for, I did the episode catalog for us just to try and do some organization stuff. And yeah, whenever I see Kuso, I'm just like, wow, that was still just a, that is a movie I still remember now. Proxy, not so much, you know, Scalene. I mostly forgot, like, Kuso, I know exactly 
<laughs> what happened. It is a whole different, it's, it is its own thing. But if you're into grossness. Or just learning about the world. I, I learned something in that film. And I also, I'm not going to be able to sleep if we talk about it too much. Okay. All right. So moving on. Right. Okay. I still couldn't watch the beginning of this film. It wasn't apparently just an artifact of still being breastfeeding at the moment when I watched it last time. I still couldn't, I still couldn't watch it. It was horrible. But what I was trying to say was that that putting the audience through that, especially right at the beginning of the film, in some ways, I think fights the misogynistic argument that the film would be maybe critical of the women for not appreciating the mothering time that they should have been appreciating the actual act of mothering. And instead they're crazy and they're, they're pulling at these wrong things. And that would somehow still reify the societal image of motherhood rather than being critical of maybe the disjointedness between the societal image of motherhood and how we as a society treat mothers and what recognition we give them for that actual job. I think there's something there in putting us through a scene that is horribly painful to watch, but also it's just really brutally tears apart. It, It picks at that ideology to the extent that you look at a woman who's pregnant and think, Oh, it just beats that right out of you as an audience. And it's horrible. And it was horrible. Like I said, I couldn't even watch it this time either. But I think that says something about the message of the film. And I think it says something that, so you have told me that you appreciated that in particular, that I sent you this because no one was, something about people were only really seeing you as a mother. And me sending this was like me interacting with you as you, other than not related to you being a mother. And that is appropriate here because that's what Esther is talking about, right? Or that's what the we're saying the whole idea of the film is. It's like just being the mother, like that takes over your identity. It's such a powerful master status that you lose your individuality and your recognition as anything really other than a mother. And maybe that it's a it's a powerful master status that also doesn't come with very much acclaim. Right. It's a ton of hard work and nobody appreciates you <laughs> and nobody gives you any sort of accolades for it. Well, we may give you lip service, but it's like but it's all lip service. It's like the the essential workers during COVID. We'll put up a billboard and an advertisement that says thank you, but we're not going to actually pay you or give you health insurance or whatever. It's all lip service, right? So yeah, I, I, it's a brutal scene. I, I think that must be how we found the film. It's the only other film that has anything like this, that has anything like pregnancy violence, that I can really think of as Inside which is one of the new French extremity films. I don't know if you ever watched that. Yeah, we, I want to say we saw it together. Maybe we didn't. I, I, I did, it. and I remember not loving it for some reason. Oh, really? I mean, I know I watched it once with Patrick, because Patrick actually got lightheaded <laughs> at one particular scene in the film. No spoilers. But he had to like get up and put cold water on his face, because he was upset. But yeah, pregnancy... Pregnant, but especially violence against pregnant women, we, as a society, we're really, it's bold to put that in a film. I will say that. And I, I know we're not grading yet, but I would say it was, it was justified. It was not a gratuitous, and it could totally be a shock value scene. And that could totally be a shock value scene. And I really don't think it was at all. It was totally earned. I absolutely agree with you. And after all the the trouble I gave Zach Parker on Quench. Was it Quench? It was Quench. Yeah, yeah. For the use of presumably AIDS as what felt to me like a punchline. I don't think this was, no, absolutely it wasn't gratuitous. Right. It was incredibly impactful in the way it was laid out, starting with her OBGYN appointment and getting a little attached to her, to exactly what she's talking about later. Oh, she's going to be a mother. Oh, she's at this appointment. And to me, having the first time I saw it, having had that be a very recent memory and also a memory that because of all of the infertility treatments, that was a really big deal to be able to go and say, Oh my gosh, it worked. And having a baby, you know, there was a lot of vicarious sentiment in that. And And I would imagine it would have to be, Oh, and I'm close to the due date and everything seems to be normal and healthy would have to be like a huge relief. I mean, obviously a lot of complications happen with the actual giving birth, but at least you know you've gotten to essentially the finish line without 
something, I don't know, defect or concerns or whatever. And then, yeah, to just, right. I do also, I think we should acknowledge, or I would like to acknowledge that this has a echo. There is an echo of martyrs in this film, which I very much appreciate, which it, it moves through three like full stories. It moves through Esther, you know, and then she's killed whatever halfway through the movie or third away through the movie. And she's just basically done. I mean, she's still referenced, but then we move on to a whole nother sequence. Well, and if you count just that opening scene as sort of its own like microcosm, very like, like martyrs, the opening before this title screen is, I can't remember which girl escapes and runs out into the street. It's like this whole story just before the scene. We have this whole crazy story even before the title card. And then we've got this whole other narrative of the grieving. And then we've got this whole other narrative of she wanted this to happen. And we're just like, it just like it, it just those turns that are like massive turns, but still maintain a cohesion over the whole film. There are very few films that we have seen that take on that much plot and are able to do it effectively and have it be cohesive and everything else. And I think that's a real credit to some of what we appreciated about the film. Absolutely. And the lack of a clear villain. I would say if there's a villain, it's Melanie. But it's really interesting to say that in the context of the overall story and the fact that Esther killed two children. I mean, however you want to call it when she set herself up to be beaten a couple of weeks before she was going to give birth. And then she drowned the little boy and she doesn't even come to mind as the first villain. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm laughing because yes, you're totally right. I was like, Oh yeah, she, 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 she did do those things. <laughs> uh, and then somehow, right. It's like, I was really, yeah. Yeah. Somehow it's, uh, it's like, I can see that. <laughs> Which, it's funny because actually, even seeing your reaction to me saying that, no one else, is that right? No one else hurt anyone. I mean, Annika did for Esther. Yeah, but that was, again, well, for me, that was a, it was a, it was a fetus. It was far along, but it's still a fetus. And it was at her request, which does beg these these questions that we've been asking recently about what is the extent of, which we talked about with Scalene, right? Which is what is the extent by which you can allow someone to determine their own, if they want to be abused or have a fetus beaten out of them, do we get to say no? And then Annika is willing to do violence maybe, but, but no, Esther, so you can at least say Esther is like half responsible at least for the fetus and then drowns the kid is presumably ready to beat him to death with crowbar, but conveniently finds the, the the tub, which seems like two different styles of infanticide, but whatever, ends up, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, and then Melanie shoots Annika. Well, so right, right, right. It's basically Esther. So Esther kills the kids. She kills the... Right. Considerably more innocent in the grand scheme of things characters compared to Annika. Melanie kills Annika, but Annika did have her tied to a chair a little while ago. Annika seems a bit unstable. When Melanie kills Annika, it wasn't entirely self-defense, but I think it was... Oh, no. It was partially... Well, the first shot probably self-defense, but finishing her off was definitely not self-defense. She had been shot. She wasn't going to... At that point, she wasn't going to do anything. But I would say it wasn't quite the same as Melanie. No. Melanie didn't do what Esther did, which was go out and kill people in pursuit of her own problems, trying to fix her own crazy mental state. Right, right. Whereas I feel like Melanie started off in self-defense and then recognized the opportunity to feed her own mental problems and took it, which is a bit different. Yes, I agree with that. It It is a bit different. All of which is to say that Esther was the villain, but yeah. she was never especially, I mean, she should have been, I don't know if she should have been, she wasn't the villain. I think Melanie was the villain of the overall story, but that's another, I will say like non-reification 
of the status of motherhood and the status of children that our one character who killed two children is not actually presented by the film as the most problematic character in the film. Right. I'm sorry. I, I, something else is happening. So I'm sure at some point we'll see what, on the news what was happening <laughs> two, two blocks away from my house. <laughs> Why don't we wrap this up and then you can go out there and see what's going on. Okay, that sounds good. Is there more that you would like to mention? Or I think we've talked about a good, a good amount of the film, honestly. I, you know, my apologies. I've been somewhat distracted because I have things literally going on outside my window. But no, I think I, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. The biggest question I had at the end of it was what I led with. Mm-hmm. Are there societal implications? Is there a societal message here beyond just a set of really interesting characters who were presented in, I think, a, a really compelling storyline? And maybe there was. It, it's nodding at some things. I don't know if I would say that the film pulls together a real cohesive message, that it indicts anyone in particular or anything in particular. It's, it's hitting on some important ideas and important themes that could be read as societal indictments. But I'm going to say that it doesn't, even though it hits on those interesting topics, it doesn't necessarily give us a clear message on them. And that's okay. It doesn't have to. I prefer it when films do. But I'm going to guess that this is one of those cases where the interesting societal parallels or the ideas we might bring up are more something that are com- that's coming out of our conversation than coming out of the intent of the film. Although I would like to ask him about that, honestly. Yeah, I just wrote that down to ask if there was an intention, a societal message intention. I guess the only other thing I'd mention is that for proxy... Do we say that Annika was a proxy for Esther in the sense that she, she served as her actor in, in, the, in beating out the fetus? Esther was the proxy then for Melanie in that she did what Melanie couldn't do, as she says. Nice, right? Okay. I mean, I feel like there's something there about Melanie at the end getting what she wants, which wasn't really true. She got a story that isn't a real story. It's not what really happened, but it's a story she gets anyway. Right. Yes. She's still lying at the end. She that's what, that's why she's the villain. That's totally why she's the villain. Is she is still planning to lie at the end. She's like, oh, my husband killed himself, but I can blame it on because my husband killing himself doesn't make, doesn't, because she specifically says intruder came in and killed my husband. So I had to kill her. Right. So she's still lying. She's still going to manipulate the situation to make the best narrative for, in her mind, for being a survivor or a, or a sympathetic character or whatever. That's oh, totally, you're totally why she's right. Villain. You're totally right. Esther was crazy, but what's her name now? I'm forgetting. She Melanie. Was, Esther, Esther was crazy, was crazy but, but go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. But Melanie was crazy and manipulative. And Esther was crazy, but was willing to carry through with the actions consistent with her craziness. She was willing to kill the kid to not be the mother even though she wanted, she was like, okay, I'm, I want the acknowledgement of being pregnant, but I'm, I'm willing to kill the kid for that. I will pay the price for my desperation or whatever. And Melanie is not ever willing to actually, she's never honest about it. Again, Esther may be crazy, but at least there's an honesty in it. I don't know if honesty or an integrity. It's, not, it's still kind of an odd word, but. You're totally right. I see what you're saying. And I think you're totally right. Maybe that's an interesting note to end on. Yeah. Yeah. Should we do a quick, quick grade? Yeah. I'm going to go with a B because I think it was a super well done film. I don't, I don't see any problematic messaging. I see some messaging that has the potential to be positive. I don't think it was fully formed enough that it made a, a real coherent argument, but I just really enjoyed it. And I just think it was a feat to put it together, to put together that complex a story with that much empathy. Again, I'll say something similar to what I said with Scalene. We had a lot of empathy for a lot of characters that were absolutely imperfect. And we were interested in them as human beings, not just as scapegoats for whatever they were meant to represent. And when you're dealing with the types of contentious topics this film was dealing with, I think that says something about how you tell a story and, and maybe that's where I'm going to give it credit for, for humanizing characters that could easily not have been humanized and for raising some issues that are actually 
I think important issues to think about, even though it didn't lay down a clear referendum and also didn't lay down a problematic referendum. Yeah, I'm gonna, I would go slightly higher. And I think mostly just because I liked seeing narratives about women that were, that were complex. And like you said, a nuanced and fallible and imperfect, but still very empathetic. I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And, you know, having watched, this is the fourth in our series of these, these films, uh, having watched all of these, um, I officially now have crowds of people outside the window. Crowds. All right, well, let's wrap this up so you can go out there and... Yeah, uh, sorry. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think the film is phenomenal. Having seen his growth as a filmmaker was exceptional. Can we, you want to do a recording intro tomorrow after we talk to him? I think we should do the intro really well. I think we should do it really fast. I think it'll be disjointed if we do it later. It'll take okay. 10 seconds. Maybe. I have, uh, it says something. Um, uh, I take it okay. back. Things are getting noisier over there. Just go see what's going on and text me. Let me know what's up. I, yeah, I will. Okay. All right. Take care, Laura. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. And with that, we appreciate you joining us for a pregnant discussion about the film. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> so good. I'm sorry, I think I oh. laughed over it. It was so good. Hester? I think I've been saying it with an Hester. E. I think it's... Just it's an E. Oh, yeah, because she was tattooing, tattooing her, her name, and it was an E. Yeah. I have one other thing to say that's probably going to go into outtakes, which is that so apparently Melanie, that actress, is primarily a soap opera star, or that's where she's, she was a soap opera star. I think there's a real fine line between the look of a soap opera star and a, like, MILF porn star. Because <laughs> I could see her making that segue <laughs> very easily. That totally, might be a totally terrible thing to say, and maybe I'll cut it, but I, I did, I, did I, I was just looking at her and I was like, She's such a soap opera star. Like once I saw that, I was like, I was looking at her. I was like, that's exactly what she looks like. Um, but I only did two miles and I did it so slow, but hey, it's way better than nothing, I think. Um, oh yeah. My stomach felt bad. Like it just felt bleh, the entire time. Those are the biggest days when you feel good <laughs> and it's easy. It's, that's all fine and dandy, but if you only ran on those days, <laughs> You know, you would only yeah. get, you wouldn't get very far. Uh, yeah. Things, so good for you. Yeah, it worked out. This timing actually worked out okay too, because I came back and I was just so tired. And part of me is like, why did I push this so late? I just need to go to bed. But I just showered and I brushed my teeth and I had my second dinner and I did like everything <laughs> I needed to do before bed so oh. I could hang out with you and then crawl like immediately into bed. So, so you're still on farmer time? Is that because of Noah? He's up at six every single day, like every day. So, yes, yeah, especially with the cat. The cat does not help. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I will say on days when the cat doesn't wake him up. Oh, I see. If the cat jumps on the curtains, I'm going to have to just get up and interrupt our podcast and scream at him. You don't <laughs> have a spray bottle? Spray him from where it. you are. I, could go. I know, I can't find it. I could take some time to look. Noah, that's also a problem with a six-year-old in a spray bottle. He finds it and he thinks it's cool and he goes and does stuff with it. So like I find it in weird places, empty next to a bottle, you know? Well, I don't know where it is right now. I'll find it in the closet or something. <laughs> the freezer. I don't know. Okay. Let's see. Let's see. Anyway, what were you doing? Were you at the protest? I walked up there. Yeah. They're, they're, uh, people were weaving through the neighborhoods, honking hordes and calling people to the Capitol. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, so I walked out to see what was going on, and I got as far as the police precinct, and that's where there was starting to kind of be a standoff. 
and I watched there. Apparently, there is now protest at the Capitol, which I feel like I should go to, but we're going to do this instead. So, yeah, I would totally say postpone this if it weren't for the fact that we're talking right. to Zach Parker tomorrow. And I've got office hours in the morning. I'm from nine to twelve office oh hours. God. So, but yeah, hopefully nobody comes or not many people come. I mean, I often get some downtime during that, but I'm going to have to, um, during my office hours, I'm going to mentally get ready for talking to Zach. Maybe we can even communicate sometime during that time. And sure. Because you know, we're talking to him at one. Is that right? Yeah.